Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I am pleased to bring you the return of Curtis Yarvin, one of the most important writers and thinkers working today and one of the most important people to my thought in this show. Last year, he came on to discuss the Passage Prize, a literary prize in which he was the judge for poetry, and this year's occasion is the first official publication of his blog, Unqualified Reservations, Volume 1, also put out by Passage Press. Passage Press is a small publisher of both original and Internet content, and host of the annual Passage Prize, which also includes a category in fiction, nonfiction, and visual arts. Passage Press is looking for investors and is also selling books on its website, which I'll link in the show notes. In the future, they hope to publish original work from previously unknown authors, many of whom they discover through the annual contest. In addition to this, I am hosting a series of reading groups on Twitter in which we discuss work from Passage Press and group chats, as well as moderated Twitter spaces. In the coming months, we will have Twitter spaces discussing both the winners of this year's and last year's Passage Prize, as well as the book-length blog post and open letter to open-minded progressives, included in the Unqualified Reservations, Volume 1, available from Passage Press. To buy books from Passage Press, you can visit them on Twitter at Passage Press or on their website at Passage.Press. And to get involved in the reading groups, of which there will be many more, follow me at Thulean Revenant on Twitter. That's T-H-U-L-E-A-N-R-E-B-E-N-A-N-T. And make sure to check the show notes for links to all of these things and more. Thank you for joining us. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shibats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we discover a of God and reach the side of the ocean floor. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. Today I am joined. I'm very proud and uh, humbled to announce that Curtis Yarvin has come back and uh, we got a lot to get to today. Mr. Yarvin, thank you so much for coming on the show. A lot of people are excited to um, to you. hear us for another go round. All right. All right. It's great to be here. Now, um, last time I had you on, you were judging the poetry contest for the Passage Prize. And this mm-hmm. year... I'm having you on because of the occasion of the publishing, as far as I know, the first time ever official publication of unqualified reservations in book form. That's right. That's right. It's really, I mean, you've been able to buy stuff in book form on Amazon before. It's been, you know, actually, I mean, a lot of work was done just to pull it off of Blogspot um, and and put it into the form that's on unqualifiedreservations.org. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, <clears throat> neglect the people who did that work. They know who they are. Um, and, and I don't want to sort of, you know, like, but, but, 
you know, what's been done here is at another level of quality. You know, you have a whole kind of system designed for basically representing hyperlinks in text, you know, in, in, in publishing form. I mean, this is something where a lot of attention has been paid basically to the detail of this. And then there's also in the volume, uh, you know, of course, like a new essay by me introducing and, and conceptualizing these old these old works i have a very neurotic peculiarity which is that that um uh, in order to um as one might say uh keep my shit fresh uh, i try not to actually read either stuff written about me or my old material and so i basically contributed a review of these works just from my memory of them <laughs> um which is uh you know 10 years old and um you know, debilitated by parenting. And, um, the, uh, so, so I, so I, I think it's a good volume. It's, it's, you know, something you want. Um, it's not, it's not a limited run, right? It's not, um, you know, but it's, it's definitely, you know, the first printing of this or whatever is something you want to have, you know, on, on the shelf when my goon squads come. And, you know, if it's, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, the, uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great, um, it's, it's great that Lomas and folks are doing this. And I, and I want to talk more about sort of kind of the like publishing and media basically side of, kind of this little dissident thing of ours because it's starting to become like actually kind of somewhat viable, which was certainly not the case like 10 years ago when even when unqualifiedreservations.org was put up, I mean, I stopped blogging in 2013. That was very much a labor of love, you know, and so this is not going to be like a hugely profitable giant publishing success, but you know, it's not like money has to be poured into it and no money will come back out, you know? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's, that's like, there's, there's definitely, there's an interesting space opening up here. And I would say that, you know, the quantity of energy that is going into, in some sense, retaking traditional institutions of various kinds. I was just reading about this, Federalist Society spin-off uh, Tenio not to be confused with the political consulting firm Tenio and and the like it, it's sort of any one of these like oh like well it's a very heavily funded and well organized but like we'll get like young influencers to like you know we'll infiltrate you know the networks with our people just you know there's a sort of unspoken you know kind of conspiratorial thinking that you know we're going to basically infiltrate them with communists the way they, inf or we're going to infiltrate them with dissidents or something, or we're going to infiltrate them with Republicans. I mean, cause these are very normie boomer cons, right? You know, we're going to infiltrate them with like Republicans in Hollywood, right? You know, and somehow Republicans in Hollywood, like never have the ability, you know, I mean, there are networks of Republicans in say Hollywood, but they never sort of seem to really have the ability to infiltrate and kind of take over like, you know, if you look at the communists in Hollywood in the 1930s, they basically turned Hollywood into a closed screenwriting into a closed union shop 
that was run by the Communist Party that was controlling basically all of the movies that everybody saw, right? So you basically got this, like, incredibly, this is what, you know, the Hollywood 10, who are the leadership of the Hollywood Communist Party, this is what that affair is about, uh, you know, uh, and if you look at sort of that level of power and you imagine, you know, what was it? The, uh, friends of, friends of Abe, the Hollywood, like, you know, Republican list. Imagine like friends of Abe having like a lock on like screenwriting in all of Southern California. You know, you couldn't get a job as a screenwriter unless you were a secret Republican. You know, it's retarded. It's unimaginable. It's like, you know, and, and so you, you sort of see all of these efforts kind of being poured into kind of retaking institutions in various ways and sort of less in terms of kind of creating institutions in the same sense that, you know, Loma's the mysterious editor of Passage Press is, is taking on. And it just seems like, you know, even to the extent that there's any kind of sort of alternative institution building, it sort of seems like it seems like very facile. It feels like something that's designed with for some mysterious sort of success in like five years or something, some ridiculously short time span like that. And and it just doesn't like it has this sense of falseness and like, you know, that is really inappropriate in something that's trying to replace something whose chief problem is like falseness. So, you know, that's why I'm sort of, you know, enthusiastic about, you know, there's like a huge, if you compare like say the kinds of media that will come out of these kinds of things and you compare what will, I mean, passage is hardly, and there's like, six, seven, eight, I don't know how many of these small dissident presses there are working at sort of various levels of quality and, you know, and so forth. But like, if you compare those to like the like boomer con, some like boomer con imprint of like penguin or something, right. <laughs> you know, like there's just so much more energy there. And there are so many things that are not possible in some boomer con, you know, imprint of penguin and like, yeah, it's just, and, 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 and these, you know, this, this sort of, what you, what you have in this space from my perspective is this sort of little, it's, it's like from the like putting my like Silicon Valley hat on, you know, it's this sort of little spark of activity, but the spark has a self-sustaining quality. It's not like one of these like fusion, you know, research things where they have to put in the entire power supply of Minnesota for three days to like get 12 neutrons out. Right. You know, and, and, and the sense that like the sort of spark is both self-sustaining and kind of has an independence that you don't even see in like Ben Shapiro because like, I mean, Ben Shapiro makes bank, right? Ben Shapiro is very, very self-sustaining, but Ben Shapiro is also like very afraid of getting canceled in this way or that way or the other way. Ben Shapiro is very dependent on networks that, you know, would kind of drop him very quickly um if he went full Kanye or something right and 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 so like this sense of like really rigorous you know even like signaled independence where you basically counter signal in order to establish your 
independence. That's a thing that should be done in a very careful and limited way, but like, it's actually kind of important, you know, this sort of truly, I, you know, I feel like basically it's like looking at like a punk scene or something in 1977, right? You know, you like the scene is much, much smaller. Punk is much, much smaller than disco, but let's face it, disco sucks. And, you know, so like the true judgment of history will be that, that, you know, punk matters much more than disco, not that disco doesn't matter, but like disco sucks. And, and so, you know, you already have this sense of kind of rigorous independence that you kind of don't see in this kind of somewhat slicker stuff that is subject to these kinds of taboos that is like, you know, kind of CPAC material and, and the CPAC material just turns out to be very, very ephemeral. Whereas the kinds of stuff that these, these little independent things are doing now will last like, I think a really long time. Enough rant. Yeah, it's great. No, I, I agree completely. And, um, what we're watching, I mean, I've taken to using some pretty hyperbolic language about it recently because I mean, it, it, it really seems, feels like a, a cultural renaissance of sorts. And I don't know how contained it will be or if it's really going to get out and take off. But at this point, it looks like it's going to get out and take off and, and there's, it's picking up steam. It certainly feels like it's picking up steam just to get a couple of the technical mechanical things out of the way. And I'll link this, uh, Curtis mentioned that the book isn't a limited run. What he means by that, if you're not familiar with passage is that they did put a couple of limited runs out with uh, very high price tags. They sold out two limited runs both times. So it's an interesting business model. Yeah. Um, but you're, I really you're... haven't, I haven't followed. I, I I hope they send me a check at some point. I haven't followed, <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't micromanage Lomas's, you know, business stuff and all of the publishing. The only thing I contributed to the publishing process was the introductory essay. And then I said, I wanted the cover to look like a social science textbook from the 1950s. Yeah. And Can you achieve that. <laughs> well, I didn't achieve it. I, I asked for it. Okay. Um, well, they achieved like, it. You they know, achieved thanks. It. Yeah, they achieved it. And, you know, thanks, thanks to the uh, designer who, uh, you know, knows who she is. But, um, yeah, it's all, it's all, I don't think there's anyone not anonymous in some way associated with, the, you know, the publishing, which is also, you know, kind of a beautiful choice. And yeah, yeah this no, is all a non-run, which is interesting, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just wanted to mention real quick, the hardcover volume one, are they going to do the whole blog all the way through? Uh, I am not sure, you know, the, the volume one implies, you know, a certain plan, but you know, um, you know, many, many plans go, go amiss. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think that there is such a plan. I don't know, you know, sort of what plan is afoot. They're also going to publish Grey Mirror, the book, uh, oh, nice. comes out. And, um, some friends are also working for Grey Mirror on a very innovative stone covered edition. That's amazing. Um, and, uh, so that'll be, that'll be radical. Of course, a very limited edition for, uh, you know, but, but yeah, that's the, you know, that's, that's, that's certainly the plan. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, um, getting, getting back to speed on, on Grey Mirror, the book. So expect something, uh, from that soon. Oh, yeah. Um, you and you announced you were going to put a book out. Yeah, yeah, first... yeah. That's the, kind of their original plan. And then, you know, I kind of got derailed around when my wife passed. And I was also not completely satisfied with sort of the draft 
that I had. And, you know, I recently, um, I mean, I'm still involved in just bizarre personal shit, but, uh, I recently, uh, uh, you know, I, I realized how I wanted to structure and do this. So I'll have a, a first chapter out fairly soon of a new, uh, of a new draft B. But, you know, I think the difference is not to tease people too much. Um, I think that, that one of the things I've decided is that kind of, I want to put all the really serious, like, I'm going to fuck with your head mind fuckery up front in the first chapter and then kind of break you through into this alternate world. And then we'll just like, have very little mind fuckery because I'm a little tired of that shit to be honest. Yeah, you know, <laughs> people seem it seems like people's minds are quite easily fucked, doesn't it? It's it seems like it it's happens easier and easier. And this is this is one this is one point not to tease my my first chapter too much, but this is one point I've made a little bit before um which is, you know, but I think it's it's gathering it's, it's sort of increasingly real, which is that you have a kind of two kinds of doing politics in a way. And one is to sort of reason people or argue them or sort of otherwise subtly persuade them in some direction. Typically they feel that they've sort of persuaded themselves and in this sort of process of like persuasion, which is mostly about peer pressure rather than logic, uh, you know, is sort of the normal way that politics works and public opinion changes. And what people in this, in the business of like moving public opinion around this way don't realize is that over the decades of the 20th century, like political engagement has just dropped so much that people are kind of barely tethered to this map. Moreover, they're barely tethered to this map. They can basically be moved sort of only in the kind of like short distances across it. It's hard to really persuade them. They're exposed to basically all of these sources of persuasion basically all the time. And, and if you think that this is sort of the only way to manage public opinion, you're sort of kind of lost, but sort of, there's another way that public opinion changes, which is sort of this kind of process of total conversion, or as you might say, pilling, right? And the thing is, when you have basically a very, very, an audience that's very frivolous, very ironic, very loosely tethered to reality in general, they are not particularly easier to persuade, but they're much easier to pill. And so they're sort of exposed to a kind of ironic meta politics that can just sort of pick you up and deposit you anywhere. And, you know, say what you want about Vladimir Zelensky, but he was elected president of the Ukraine after being the lead actor in a TV show called Servant of the People, in which he is a high school teacher elected president. He then runs for president on a party called Servant of the People, wins. Best of all, all of this is funded by the same oligarch. But <laughs> the, and so I'm just like, wow, you know, the, the East is just ahead of us, right? I mean, just, you know, <laughs> and, and the, I mean, they've always had a really strong, the Slavs have always had a really strong sense of irony. But the, like, sort of the possibilities of kind of a mass market ironic politics, which basically does just utterly crazy things just because it's fun to do utterly crazy things combined with your crazy things that are actually like good things as sort of the, uh, 
I think it's it's kind of the you know the challenge. I think that's the only kind of politics that can produce some actual result, but I also think it's increasingly possible. And there's also, there's an, you know, also as a kind of a scene like this builds a little bit of momentum, it gets a little bit of peer pressure effect as well. It starts to feel cool and kind of exclusive and like everyone you meet in the scene is like really awesome. And, you know, these are, these are huge factors, right? You know, and so, yeah, that's, that's like the, you know, that's the process of, of conversion anything to add to that like yeah well let's get let's get right into the process of conversion then because in your um uh acorns for the culture war essay which which caused a big splash because of the you know your critique of rufo and desantis and then their response which actually was interesting enough and i followed it but to me all the interesting stuff like the really interesting stuff in that essay was lower because i'm very concerned Mm -hmm. with uh art production, generating right. culture, new culture, um, and, and things that exist on the margins of society that, you know, uh, to use yeah. a cringe I mean, term. Ha- a- half of the, you've got to understand half of the pretext of that essay was I'm going to basically, um, make a bunch of noise to get a couple of my friends Kickstarters it, to get, which I'm happy sure to say worked. that I did. It sure <laughs> works. Yeah. And, well, the, the tacos movie got funded. Yeah. As, yeah. as we know. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, so it sure it, it, worked. It, it, I think they still need more money, but 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 the um that's a good start. I mean, I've read I've read the script of the Tacos movie, so you know it's I can't again I can't I can't disclose what it is because I mean it's a Tacos movie. What can I say? But yeah. like you know, I personally would love to see a feature length you know anthology of Tacos shorts you know film. I'm sure that you know we'll see how this one turns out. I'm sure that could be easily made. You know, my point is that like the difference between the impact of something like genuinely fresh like that and the impact of basically a bunch of like stale, ephemeral, grifty propaganda whose goal is to like make money um, is just enormous. And it's like, basically, I just don't feel like... You know, really, it's just, it's like always bad. Like it's, it's not just bad practice. It's like bad karma to talk shit about donors. Okay. Never, ever talk shit about donors. And uh, if you have a concern, bring it up to the people that you're concerned with. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, you can sort of talk shit about donors as a class and, you know, say, wow, these people really need to up their game because these are like these like low five figure, kickstarters for things that are gonna be like remembered as like new york armory show tier fucking events in like 25 fucking years right you know (laughs) and and so you know the thing is if you really think you can have an impact on anything in like five years 10 years which is frankly you know freaking delusional like that's one thing but if you're sort of doing things in a realistic way if you're doing things on you know the kind of time scale that is actually the time scale on which you know even these kinds of like obviously you're not converting everyone you know at once as if you'd put your pill in the water supply i mean i'm not saying we're not working on never mind but uh the the um uh you know you're not converting everyone at once but you're creating sort of a kind of rolling ball of conversion you know very 
you're in a situation. I mean, there's nothing at all like Christianity here, of course. I mean, not that I have anything against Christians, but you know, if you think of Christ, the revolutionary leader, uh, you know, the man really knew what he was doing. <laughs> um, and it took him, you know, his cult basically a couple of hundred years to basically become the dominant religion of the Roman world. And again, it was through conversion. It was through, you weren't like partly a Christian, right? You know, that was not a thing, you know? And, and, and so, you know, you're looking at a kind of basically Jesus pilling of the whole Roman empire. Right. And, and when you look at sort of the process by which that took place and the way Christianity is a sort of like punk, cool, underground thing that definitely becomes cool or an early Christianity definitely becomes cool in certain ways. We see prominent early Christians, right? That's not going to happen unless there were cool parties and it's just not, you know, at some level. And, and so, you know, that, that sort of, you know, everything is kind of different in the details, but you see how different that is just as a kind of strategic model from the like, we're going to prevail in the marketplace of ideas model that has been like conservatism's like classical liberal stock and trader most of the 20th century. And now we think, see things like this, like Teneo thing where it's like, okay, wow, we've got to be like the communist party in the 1930s. And, you know, I'm like, okay, like, you know, I, like give you points for like doing something serious, but it's sort of like the vibe is still not quite right there. It just like has a deep level of falsity. And in fact, if you look at, you know, not to speak harshly of, you know, Leonard Leo, but if you look at basically what FedSoc has become, you know, it's, you know, in some ways it's a success and in some ways it's a failure. It basically put these three, duds on the supreme court you know cat i mean it put it, it installed this this whole conservative majority you know has this fed sock uh, roberts must have been involved right you know but like the thing is that what you've generated is you've generated this sort of set of people who are really not convinced that they're in like a cold civil war in any sense they're more concerned about like getting some things and or getting or establishing some principles or something like that which is a really like deep misreading of the situation in my opinion and so you know there's there's for example you know in the in the Dobbs decision there's absolutely no political mileage in doing that you're basically paying the sort of pure political price and the thing is if you have that kind of that's a very innocent kind of thinking you know for something that's sort of as weirdly conspiratorial as the federalist society and when you basically go to like a fed sock you know um, you know, chapter on a top, at a top school today, as I understand it, you basically are going to have a majority of a, probably a substantial majority of, of Amy Coney Barrett, like super hobbits, essentially. And then you're going to have a non-trivial minority. The, the of hobbit paladins. It. Yeah, the Hobbit Paladins, right? And then you ha you'll have you're going to have a non, you know, um, um, you know, the, the whole like D and D race and class thing, like is just like you know, uh, you know, 
originated with Tolkien, but then it gets even more crass, you know, and you know, you almost think that old good old HP Lovecraft had a, had a hand in it somehow. And, and the, um, and then, you know, then you'll have a substantial mi- minority who are like dark elves of some kind, whether they're libertarians, you know, whether they're truly based, like, you know, but there's, there's sort of, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, once people whose commitment to any kind of conservatism is both a very soft and b sort of this sort of emotional warmth that they got from like growing up in a conservative household in a conservative community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then, you know, they just start using something like FedSoc as a jobs program. And so it's actually not, you know, infiltrating the system with like warriors in any sense. It's sort of infiltrating the system with like people who (laughs) they're kind of, they're deadweight almost. They're like, they basically, you know, you certainly could have found Scalia clones to fill those seats and you just didn't do that. Right. And, and so, you know, there's a sense of being, you know, like the sense of, of anything like that being something that kind of runs out of gas very quickly and is very, ineffective and consumes i mean in a certain sense like stocking the supreme court with basically your side is like the sort of long-running like score in the cold civil war and you know the thing is uh you know like progressives have been thinking of this as a cold civil war for most of the 20th century in fact not all of the 20th century so you're kind of really just catching up there and and so when you basically you know use power that way you're sort of demonstrating this kind of very fatal naivete and the source of the naivete is that you're basically kind of living in fear still of the powers that be. And you just like, I mean, it it just sort of doesn't work. And so you basically get these kind of two scenes and, you know, one of them is sort of for very mild, like dissonance and another is like kind of truly punk. And, you know, the question is then, you know, how you handle like the truly punk scene, how the truly punk scene like grows and is kind of has, a feeling of like cultural vitality and like longevity because you know the thing is when you're it's like when you're disco like you know and or if you're just like in some sense the creation or of the recording industry if you're something that would not exist without the recording industry the recording industry three years from now could decide that you know aor is the thing and, and disco is dead right you know but punk will never be dead and and because punk has that kind of you know punk is a kind of scene that's kind of burning from itself and so you know when you see when you look in history at like things that were sort of punk like but in like the mainstream like you know uh, i mean mainstream recording companies would pick up on these trends very quickly and sort of get, do things that were kind of inflected with them like slightly hippieish folk like in the mid 60s and so forth that stuff all sings without a trace and and so you know you're basically when you're thinking hey you know conservative donors and especially conservative arts donors when you're thinking about how to make an impact with your resources don't think about the impact now. Think about how that impact is going to look 20 years from now. 
Changing the culture, I have, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this since you came on my show and you've really just been on an absolute tear the last year. I mean, you've been all over the place. The Vanity Fair article kind of kicked it off. Um, and, uh, getting a lot of like energy stirred up for this whole thing. Um, and as I've been looking at it, one of the things that frustrates me is everybody talks about how everyone is so myopic in our culture and they expect everything to happen right now and instantaneously. But this project that you're talking about and that you've embarked upon is a generational project. I mean, it, it sure. takes a generation. Sure, sure. And, and, you know, to say that it's my generational project, I mean, you know, many people pursued, you know, the same thing fairly early and like it was sort of the only possible obvious kind of next project in a way. It's like you don't sort of there's this desire of modernity to like escape from the past, but sort of even the desire to escape from the past has this immature quality, like a teenager trying to escape from his parents, you know? And the thing is that basically you feel when you're like 19, like the vibe of the 20th century is I'm 19, mom, I'm 19, dad, you know, I can do whatever I want, you know? And then they get the, then they're like, I'm in jail, dad, I'm in jail, you know? <laughs> and like all of this shit goes down. Right. And it's like, fuck you, mom, fuck you dad we're gonna have free love we're gonna have like you know like uh, um um no private property we're gonna like you know live in live in an anarchist squat right you know and and the thing is that you know there's been this sort of like kind of relapses and falls you know people really you know people kind of felt the reality of the 60s and like how destructive it, it was and kind of reacted to that from the 80s kind of into the 90s that was kind of my formative gen x era right and then you know to have basically the millennials come on the scene and find you know um um come up with this uh, you know aave word woke to describe the stuff that was in fucking every elite college in, you know, 1973 and in every cow college in 1993 um, as something that was like new in 2013, um, you know, was, it was, was, uh, you know, it's hard to sort of like this, this stuff kind of has these natural tides that roll kind of backward and forward. It's easy to say, Oh, I'm like, kind of swaying with the tide, you know, in a kind of natural rebound. And that kind of means I'm like winning, you know, the Biden administration is I, I would like to say predicted the Biden administration has been great for all of this stuff, right? Because it's basically, you know, installed this like wheezing octogenarian, you know, uh, in front of a desk to like stamp papers. And he has the charisma of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he has some charisma. He has a lot of charisma for a 173 year old man, right? You know, but the, the, like, I, you know, everything has gotten sort of much more tired and there's been this kind of relaxation of this deranged energy that we saw during the Trump administration. And, you know, this is sort of, this is just good vibes, man. It's the, it's the right vibe for everyone. And it really basically puts you in a place where it's kind of much more possible to kind of build interesting things 
productively with a sense of, I mean, I feel like a lot of the sense of what's wrong with kind of boomer conness is that when you look at the boomer con leaders, you get a sense of leaders following their followers. You get a sense of basically like, I mean, this is a tough problem if you're doing like real world politics and trying to get elected, right? Basically, you got to face the facts, you know, that your average voter is a 55 year old, you know, Fox News watcher who can be only be reached by sending huge piles of money to political consultants who take a third of your ad spend and produce these completely bland ARP centric like ads that have not even a shred of sincerity or engagement or you know, passion or conviction. And you're just like, are just saying, pushing the buttons that were embedded in these poor boomers minds in like 1964 or whatever. And that's politics, right? You know, and of course half of people don't even bother to vote when seeing this. Why should they? What, I mean, how have you engaged anyone in this? And, and, you know, it's just, this is like enormously dead thing. And even when you come into this, uh, you know, enormously dead thing, sort of pretending to be fresh, there's a kind of pretense about it because it's like, you know, you're, you're putting out like fresh, you know, commercials or whatever. You're like, now I'm, you know, speaking to the people of like whatever state, like in a way that makes me seem like a human being. But in reality, you're only speaking because of the election and you're only doing the election to get elected. And once you're elected, you actually care more about the country than about your state. <laughs> and, and like, and so, you know, getting away from these falsehoods is very, very difficult. And it's essentially, you know, it's not just difficult if you're also hoping to be relevant. It is impossible if you're also hoping to be relevant. Well, what, and so, what... and, and so really kind of every time that sort of pulls on you in a way, like you should sort of pull away from it in the same way that you should pull away from any sort of attempt to like frighten or shock or scare basically the powers that be, which is, you know, another sort of classic kind of right wing wing error, you know, scaring the hose. But, but the, um, the, the like avoiding that other thing of basically following rather than leading your audience. And I, and I think that it, you know, is really important. And I think that one of the things about a space, you know, that has, you know, just like intellectual leaders, frankly, is impressive as someone like bronze age pervert, um, you know, the, who is, you know, not, not in any sense made of uh, iron pyrite, um is is like uh you know people rediscover the joy of actually following they're like basically they realize that if you want to be truly powerful you need to be in a world that has a chief to indian ratio that is certainly way less than one to one <laughs> and you know you basically see the sense of kind of traditional atomizing politics is like the politician is following you. He's doing what you want. Uh, you know, he's giving you the policies that you've asked for, the tax breaks that, you know, and, and 
when your leaders are supposedly following you, nobody's following anyone. Like there's no actual, the whole visceral like bond of like loyalty and support is just, you know, that like actually holds people together that you actually see in things like the Communist Party USA in the 1930s, um, as like screwed up a like scene as that was, is just totally absent here. There's no like sense of belonging in being like a Republican. It's just like this like weird like stamp that you put on, you know, and, and, you know, imagine, uh, you know, I actually, I talked to someone who's like talked to people like, involved in the like actual like political process of like doing this at the RNC or whatever. And, you know, ask the rhetorical question. Imagine if you could get all Republicans to install the Republican app on their phone. I'm like, do these motherfuckers care about being a Republican even enough to install the Republican app? The answer is no, because what would the Republican app do? It would just like spam you with illiterate boomer con, like, you know, you know, donation requests at all hours, pretend personal messages from people you see on TV. And basically it would just be like, become a parent. You know, the problem is the reason you wouldn't have the Republican app on your phone is that it would be too obvious that basically the Republican or, you know, party was this like scam sting organization like the SPLC that's basically designed to like bilk seniors out of money and like spend it on people with Cadillacs who make, you know, stilted campaign commercials and drink a lot. You know, like that's what your Republican party is, right? You know, and, and if they had the app on, on their phones, that would be obvious. And so one of the reasons why they wouldn't want to install the app is that they kind of know this and they don't want to be reminded of it. And, and sort of the, the closer they come with this thoroughly icky thing that is movement conservatism, the more icky they feel. So they actually vote for movement conservatives while holding their noses uh it's just that the you know the doctrine of these movement conservatives has seeped in enough to them that the only thing worse than a movement conservative is you know basically um an off the overton window conservative and so like when you're talking about actually like that there's a way in which kind of the like hobbit populist America as an opponent of these powers that be is sort of like China and Russia as an opponent of the powers that be. Um, because I, I would advise you not to put too much of your hopes in either the foreign or the domestic enemies of the United States government. Um, because the reality is always that it seems like they could easily win, but they don't. And, they don't in the sense that when you look at Russian and Chinese attempts to use the vast hordes of dollars that they've piled up to impact the American political system, contrary to popular belief, um, the only thing smaller, laughable, and more ineffective than the Russian attempts to influence American politics or the Chinese attempts to influence American politics. Occasionally, President Putin seems to occasionally show some signs that he's aware that it's no longer the 1980s and that if he has any friends in America, they are not, you know, on the side of what some have called global homo. And so, you know, he'll make these, these 
kind of right wing family conservative noises that, you know, sort of may seemingly attract like Americans, you know, but are all, you know, very embarrassingly ham handed, like the the like what the five thousand dollars that was spent on that Facebook campaign was just like uh you know and but 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 the Chinese are even worse. The Chinese are even worse because the Chinese still think that their allies in America are on the left. They still think this. They actually think of themselves as a left-wing Marxist-Leninist country. And so, you know, when they're talking about America's relationship with Taiwan, they're like, Taiwan is an American puppet state. America is treating Taiwan like George Floyd. Oh, God, did they say that? I think they did. They said that. They I did. think I remember they did. that, actually. They did. they did. They did. And you sort of got the image of, like, the face of George Floyd. You know, he has a long face, and Taiwan is also kind of long, you know, <laughs> out there in the... <laughs> And then the Sixth Fleet is like, you know, has its knee. I, I, I mean, but no, I mean, it's just like, like, tone deaf doesn't even begin to cover it. Um, God, what was the, I heard some hilarious story about a, um, a lobbyist for a Chinese company, an important Chinese company, which didn't understand, um, Oh my God. They didn't understand like some extremely basic, like eighth grade, you know, thing about the way America works. Like there's just like, there's like no, I don't know what's missing there, but there's like no clue there. And, and the thing is, and the hobbits are way better than that. And, and, you know, and they're sort of starting to understand basically, okay. Like when I was sort of explaining kind of the like structures of power, like the cathedral and stuff in like 2008, it was just like science fiction, man. You know, it was like, (laughs) it was really far out. And now, you know, whether or not you use my like terminology or not, that kind of discourse and, you know, the imported, you know, the word, I never used the word deep state, but it's a perfectly good word that got imported into the, into the national discourse and sort of these hobbits kind of understand in a way what they're up against. But the thing is they still like really the fatal defect of like boomer con conservatism and like understanding this is really the thing that gets you away from like, like, you know, web pages full of streaming eagles conservatism. And if you can't understand this, you will never succeed in doing that. Is that really conservatism is the aberration in basically American politics and the American political tradition considered in a historical and geopolitical context is very much a leftist tradition and always has been. And this gets everybody all turned around when they start like sacralizing what is basically 18th century leftism, uh, you know, and sort of treating it like the founding myth, you know, the Romans treated the founding myth of Rome or something. This really causes a lot of very deep historical misunderstanding that causes really people to really situate themselves erroneously in historical space and just make a lot of wrong actions. And their fundamental wrong action is that they basically see the American polity as this kind of, you know, fundament thing that was always, you know, and it was sort of, when you look at it from the present, it looks like it was always conservative, but in its time, it was always radical, uh, you know, um, 
the Republican Party when it was founded was basically the most left wing party on earth. And the like and 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 so when you sort of see the backbone of American history as kind of fundamentally conservative and you retcon Abraham Lincoln to be a conservative and like whatever the hell, right? I mean, if you can make Abraham Lincoln, you know, be a conservative, you can make the sky magenta. You can do anything, you know, and, and, and uh, Martin Luther King can be conservative. Yes, sure. Why not Martin Luther King? You know, he believed that we, as you know, he believed that we should be judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And, and like, you know, I, this is just like writing, like, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a caricature, right? And so the thing is that when you're, you know, sort of fundamentally defending this caricature, then you sort of see these problems with these caricature and you evaluate them as superficial problems. And once you see them, you know, the deep backbone of history is like fundamentally on your side and things went wrong with like the Beatles and drugs in 1966 or whatever, you know, the kids were all smoking pot, you know, like you like and listening to rock and roll music and having sex. Right. You know, and, and you're just like, even if you could roll it back to 1962, which is completely impossible, you would find that the dominant power in 1962, uh, despite being a much smaller minority, the dominant power in 1962 remains the left. This is the time of Jack Kennedy's new frontier, right? You know, um, these are people that they're going to revitalize the new deal. They're going to have more, you know, we're going to get, get, get it going again after like being bored with Eisenhower, right? You know, and it's another of these kind of, you know, waves, right? And if you basically can't like, it's like for all conservatives, one of the things that conservatives do is they basically look at the history of the last basically 500 years in Anglo-American civilization going back to say 1523 in the reign of Henry VIII. And when we look at basically the course of Anglo-American history since then, we notice that in every century we see these conflicts that are essentially left versus right conflicts. Protestantism versus Catholicism is a left-right conflict. The English Civil War is a left-right conflict. The Glorious Revolution is a left-right conflict. The American Revolution is a left-right conflict. The American Civil War is a left-right conflict. World War One is a left-right conflict, and World War Two is a left-right conflict. The only major things that don't fit cleanly into that are the Napoleonic Wars and the Cold War. Those require a little more explanation. But basically, we see that all of this history is the result of this long series of left-right conflicts in which the left always wins. And so when you're endorsing the American Revolution, the Civil War, the English Civil War, right? How many Jacobites are there out there now, right? You know, you're endorsing, you're basically up until like 1965 for a standard neocon boomercon conservative, in all of these left-right conflicts, the left is always right. Somewhere after the death of John F. Kennedy, you'll notice that, like, Kennedy is the last point where, like, you know, the presidents are, like, canon for both sides. Like, they're, they're like, Kennedy is still, neocons are still, like, Kennedy is good. Uh, they're not, like, LBJ is good. 
and um you know but like of course fdr in world war ii like neocons are just completely on board with right and and lincoln washington you know going all the way back to i don't think they think too much about oliver cromwell but they probably prefer him to charles the first and and so you know sort of going all the way back you know all of these boomer cons are on the left and then in 1965, they switch over and they're on the right side of history in basically all of these conflicts, right? And you're just like, wow, that's really weird and complicated. And it doesn't seem like it would happen by accident. And like maybe, you know, it's just, it's too complicated to be true, right? And, and so you're kind of until you're ready to say, Hey, maybe this is not a superficial problem with something that's been going completely right for the last 500 years. But like maybe actually, you know, that sort of box of what historians, as you probably know, call Whig history, which is basically, oh, you know, we just see like more and more progress in this time period until like, you know, why would we listen to like, why, why would Hen- the advisors of Henry VIII have anything to tell us about how to run a government. It's the 21st century and we have like computers and stuff. And it's like, you know what? It's the 21st century and we have like computers and stuff, you know, but our government actually sucks. Like imagine if you tried to run, you know, like if, if, if you tried to run the regime of Henry VIII without computers and stuff. Without phones, without guns, I guess they had guns, you know, <laughs> without any of this stuff, you'd have to do awfully well. And so actually, you know, as the problem has gotten easier, like we've actually gotten worse at it because we've been able to get worse at it. And so actually you should expect that older systems of government are much more efficient and effective and probably much more sane because they had to deal with much more crazy shit. Whereas most of the crazy shit that Washington does is frankly stuff that it just wants to do. (laughs) And, and, and so like, yeah, you know, when you're basically ready to say, oh, wow, it's really great that we had this, like, 450-year-old revolution to, like, get rid of the past and destroy it and rub mud in its face and proclaim ourselves endlessly better than it. Um, And it was going great for 450 years, but for the last 50 years or something or, you know, 70 or whatever, uh, it kind of went in the wrong direction. So we got to, like, stand aside history yelling stop. You know, it's just not very fundamentally convincing. It's got a lot of falsity to it it's not a story that you hear and you're just like that is obviously right (laughs) and and you know whereas i think that once you kind of you know get outside of that and you know imagine like you know you're a kid you get tired of like like woke propaganda in school or whatever so you start reading like the national review you know you're reading it like under the table like your porn you know but imagine the feeling of like graduating and this is like going on all over the place as we speak i'm sure imagine the feeling of graduating from like the national review to like bronze age perverts caribbean rhythms It's just like, basically, you've been like, you're 15 years old, you've been listening to only the top 40 music, and then suddenly you went to, like, a punk show. You were dead. Top 40 is dead to you. 
it's dead. You let's like you go home and you like throw out all those CDs, you know, and and like that's the kind of experience that something that kind of has staying power, you know, is going to work. And that's why people are going to remember Bronze Age Pervert when nobody even knows who Ben Shapiro is. All right. Well, I have a I have a question for you. Um, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. So the first thing is uh, you talk of hobbits and dark elves and all that, right? Sure. But the way this uh, cultural renaissance is playing out, it's it's very uh, digital savvy. It's very computer savvy, it, it, by which I mean it's crowdsourced, especially like the Passage Press, the, the prize sure. in particular. It's drawing from just whoever's kind of in the scene, whoever's um, – paying attention to 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 make art to make poetry to make sculpture etc 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 so these people are quite often the hobbits so they're often the hobbits they're often the hobbits but the thing is that that one of the things that's essentially like in the u.s we have genuine class mobility right and you know there are basically accepted and normative ways that you know honestly for example one way to be you know grow up as a hobbit and become an elf is to become a punk is to become basically to like requalify yourself in a subculture that is basically you know um aggressively non-traditional aggressively like post-traditional like you know even if you're like forget punks even if you're like may Allah forgive me for saying the word a juggalo right (laughs) sorry I think we lo- I think we love our juggalos, right? We love, we our, love juggalos. our juggalos. Yeah. We ju- we ju- you know, forgive me, but we love our juggalos. <laughs> but the, you know, there's a sense of like uh, of 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 escaping from the. Uh, sorry, I hate to pull out the memory uh, the memory lines, but uh, you know, uh, it's just sen- it's hard not to launch into like the stories of all the different juggalos I've met or seen online and the <laughs> crazy things that they say and sure, do. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. And it's an escape. It's an, it's a way of breaking the fucking frame. And, you know, uh, let me tell you, I don't know much about juggalos, but I'm pretty sure that when you're a juggalo, it doesn't really matter if you were an elf or a hobbit. Yeah, um, yeah, and, well said. And, yeah, right. And And so, you know, it's a dumbass frame and you sort of want to break out of it. But in a way, like basically, even by breaking out of the frame, you become sort of in a way an elf. And, and like the sense of having that of being a person who's basically broken the frame of pre-modernity, even most like, you know, there's trads and trads. There's a lot of different kinds of trads, right? You know, definitely, you know, you have like the cradle Catholic versus trad cath, you know, contention. It's sort of like I expected to become, I would hope uh, at some point it would become frankly, frank, frank, uh, a gang war, like the Norteños and the Sordeños in San Francisco. They'll, they'll come at each other with knives or, um, um, because it's a very different kind of, you know, thing. It's literally very much like first generation and second generation, like immigrant Mexicans in California. They're just very different kind of people. And, and if you, if you make the mix, they'll come at each other with knives, right? You know, and I don't see that. I don't know that that's happening over the, like the Latin mass and various 
Catholic churches, but, um, I mean, what I know, but, um, you know, the trad cath, you know, the cradle Catholic has this kind of warm reaction to these rituals, whereas the trad cath is often much more kind of fervent intellectually, you know, in the faith and perhaps sort of, I would even say believes more strongly, sort of believes with a different kind of intensity, I guess I would say. And, and it's just like my experience or my observation, because I'm not really a trad, is that it's very hard. It's hard to sort of put, I guess, the innocence of pre-modernity back together. And when I see basically trads who become trad and, and like they, I mean, I'm not faulting them in this decision it's like a really strong and kind of righteous decision and sort of i'm not really sure what like the first generation of children raised by people who have made that choice i don't even know if they're having kids i don't see i hope so we're having kids yeah see some of them are having kids right you know but but the i mean that's that's you know that's the thing you know taking that seriously is like uh you know that's that's step number one, but there's, you know, there's a sense basically that they're never quite the same thing as like a real trad. And I say that with a lot of love in my heart. And, you know, honestly, I prefer them. I prefer their company to the real thing because they're more like me, but, you know, to say that you basically can't pretty much always tell the difference you can pretty much always tell the difference and you know that would be i mean it would be kind of wild if you let sort of both of these groups kind of go like full israel and form their own like state somewhere maybe in a small mediterranean island because then they would basically sort of be forced to kind of construct an artificial tradition the way israel has but the reality is they kind of both live in the modern world and you know it's basically clear what you have to do if you want to maintain a tradition in the modern world. You have to go full Amish. You have to be like the Satmar Jews, the Hasids in New York. You have to like rigidly separate yourself from the mainstream culture with some kind of outlet valve. So basically you can take, take people who don't want to, you know, be on the derech, as they say, you know, Hasids and shove them out and be like, go. Go hang out in Sodom and get fucked in the ass, right? You know, and, and, and like the, uh, the, like, you know, yeah, but those people are like culturally impenetrable. They're politically inactive. One very important point in their success is that they're, you know, except sort of in their weird ways in their own interests, they're completely, they're not a chip that can be played in anybody's like election. And, um, but yeah, that's again, you know, it's just hard to imagine people like the tradcasts that I know doing shit like that, being shit like that. And, and that's sort of one reason why that path didn't really seem right for me and my family. But of course, you know, I have a lot of respect for the, like, you know, um, uh, for for the the like i have a lot of respect for kind of the needs that are expressed there and i think that you know those needs ultimately can and will only be addressed by like a kind of genuine change in government 
but you can't imagine sort of a regime transition ending up either it's something that has this kind of teenage sense of modernity or in something that's kind of LARPing the past and pretending to be a piece of the past. It's kind of, you know, you have to imagine a future that's kind of completely inspired by the past and completely respects it, but is also completely conscience conscious of being like part of the future that is not afraid to be like, honestly futuristic. I mean, this is one of the reasons I like Guillaume Fay's word, archaeofuturism. It, it, it captures that spirit. Well, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to ask you a question, but uh, archaeofuturism, where have I, I read this? Who, who came up with that? Guillaume, Guillaume Fay, a Frenchman, you know, okay. and I'm not sure I can endorse all of Guillaume Fay's ideas. You know, the French new right is not, you know, I mean, the word new right has been used approximately 17 times. It's, uh, you know, but, but, uh, it's not, it's not quite the same thing, but like sort of the direction and the principle of kind of a sense of kind of not fighting against technology, but actually in a way kind of using technology yeah. to accomplish a kind of rewilding of man where basically you say, no, we can have, five billion people on earth and still treat them like humans rather than like meat robots of some kind. And, you know, treating them like humans involves basically a lot of artificial difficulty, a lot of kind of things that are not geared toward efficiency, but geared toward the kind of difficulties that kind of make us complete human beings. And that's not very different from the future that is imagined on the left of the, you know, fully automated luxury communism, right? That's a horrifying world to me. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, that that's good. But I wanted to ask a question because um, – so you've talked about the the GOP boomer con uh, neocon types, right? We could just kind of yeah. throw them out the door. Um, when, when it comes Depends to the – how high up the door is, but yeah. Well, <laughs> it comes to the art and cultural movement – um, they, they are, they, they see, they're diametrically opposed to it. They basically see it as competition and they've been doing some work trying to, uh, uh, strangle it in the cradle because they see it's going to replace them. But that's another conversation. But now you're yeah. talking about the trad cats and I want to, um, make an observation and I really am interested in what your solution to this is or how you feel about this now. So the right, right? The young people who make up the right or even like the kind of unaffiliated normies who might be interested in the cultural thing sure. going on, who might sure. be taken in by BAP's charisma. Mm -hmm. um, if you break them into two factions brought very broadly, it's the conservative trad cath types. And then the types who might go along with you or BAP or Nick land and the, sure. the accelerationist types, which I'm firmly, I'm firmly convinced that the way forward is to make culture, right? Yeah. These other folks whose whose impetus to conservatism and to traditional morality and stuff, I completely understand and sympathize with. However, those are the young people that I see shouting this type of thing down and 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 arguing against it and 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 saying that this is not the way forward. And they put up quite a big stink as well, <laughs> attempting yeah. to kind of shout it down. And I want to know how you think that all fits together. If it even well, does, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I like, I take a like, uh, you know, as, as someone who's raised more than one child, I take a kind of fondly paternal attitude toward any and all sorts of beefing. Um, so, you know, great, great like, way to like, say it. Like, like you know, it. it's it's very very hard to beef with me. People have 
attempted it and generally the result is that I just won't talk to them anymore and the like and that's exactly the thing to do if you find yourself in my opinion in an incurable beef you know i'm also like almost 50 years old you know i'm not in the peak kind of you know gang crime you know demographic um and so it's pretty easy for you know someone to take this kind of you know og like you know why don't she all chill out chill out boys you know a kind yeah. of kind of attitude which is definitely my attitude toward that uh you know if you're a trad cast and you're like rigorously trad and you basically want to do like art in that like tradition yeah there, yeah there's 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 something for you which is that basically you should basically find something more like an atelier you know working in the visual and architectural the physical arts is really great you know go and learn to paint like a fucking old master you know they 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 were they were trad you're trad you can even paint the same damn things right you know that's a way of absorbing sort of your talents that kind of has a fully trad feel and can be done in a fully trad way. I'm not sure there's a way to do like film in that spirit, but I'm not sure there isn't. Why wouldn't it be, you know? And, and like, and so I think it's possible to do stuff even in a very pure tradition like that to create art and like build stuff that is not kitschy, but it demands kind of a kind of very deep kind of rigor of soul that might be more attainable to like, you know, <laughs> Leonardo than it is in our time. And, and so, and, and I think that most people who have that kind of rigor of soul are kind of unsatisfied with the somewhat stale feeling and sort of the somewhat stale and LARPy feeling of like trad Cathery at the same time, you know, one of the, one of the places where my sympathy toward, you know, the LARPy trad, you know, trad LARPing comes from is, you know, one of the reasons why trad LARPing doesn't work. And I alluded this to this or doesn't completely work. And I alluded to this in when I talked about Israel a few minutes ago is that it's simply, you know, Catholicism is something that is designed to be animated by the force of the state. Catholicism outside the state was always a slightly weird concept, sort of like diaspora Jewry almost in a sense. Like, you know, what are you even doing here when you can't sacrifice at the temple or whatever? Right. You know, and, and so, you know, that like the idea of separation of church and state is fundamentally not a Catholic idea. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it says about it in the, um, Catholic encyclopedia, but I'm sure it's not completely good. And, and so, like, to the extent that, but there's a kind of a chicken and egg problem there, which is that, you know, you do want to see a different regime, you know, if not in our lifetimes, then the lifetimes of our children. And like, for a regime such as that, with an existing church such as the Catholic Church or any church really, because nobody really cares about sectarian bullshit anymore. Uh, you know, to be honest. Uh, you know, and and like doctrine, people don't have like people used to have wars over theological doctrine 
I'm not seeing that, right? You know, given that I'm not seeing that, why doesn't everybody just be a Catholic or something? You know, and, and, and so, you know, having those tools available to kind of have the breath of life blown into them by the power of sovereignty is great. It still won't be for everyone, but like, it's sort of, you know, but, Conversely, those things without that power, without that sense, without even really that sort of hope of sovereignty have a kind of staleness to them that I think sort of will disappoint many who come to them wanting more. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. And that's why I worry, or maybe it's not a worry. Maybe it's just a prediction that it's not going to last that long. I mean, I don't know where these people are going to be in five, ten years, five years. Well, you know, there's a, I mean, there's, there's, there are many things that are just sort of like uh, scenes that are kind of only for young people and that people grow out of a little bit. But they, yeah, sometimes right. these scenes like punk recycle people through them, you know? And so, yeah, I think actually, I think there's a lot of people who like very seriously LARP at being trads of some kind in their early and mid twenties. And then are like, you know what, but we're not actually this. And, and then, you know, but they've still, I don't think most of those people would say, wow, we did made a huge mistake when we did this, you know, I still think, and you know, it's just like for like some like, you know, PTA mom who like used to be a punk and still has her like all her like punk ink. Right. You know, she's not going to be like, Oh wow. You know, I wish I'd never been a punk and like gotten these tats. She might wish that about some of the tats. Right. But in general, she's just like, wow. Yeah. It's really like fulfilling to be like, to have gone for being like, you know, uh, like punk scene girl to like PTA mom, but that doesn't mean she wants to go back and, you know, spend her night rocking out at punk clubs like either and probably damage her ears and she would take care of the baby. Right. But you know, the, the, um, I think that's sort of the right way that you can kind of, kind of pass through a phase of being trad and, you know, and, and the sense of like, and that's sort of the right way to like, I mean, it's, 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 it's a great way to sort of have experienced the past and kind of, you know, you're always going to live in a certain amount of respect for it. Um, if you've done that, if you've tried, if you tried seriously to inhabit it, you felt how big it is, you felt how much it, you know, can offer you. And maybe, yeah, maybe you're not that, maybe you're not that person, right? Maybe you kind of live in modernity and like your innocence has kind of been broken <laughs> and, yeah. and like, that will sort of never change, but at least sort of you have the kind of wisdom to understand that. And I think that, you know, it's that kind of mentality that will basically kind of, you know, help us, you know, sort of build an idea of the future, like a collective idea of a future that really feels like something that we can sort of kind of safely make a leap to it and have it you know i i really don't want to get into the rufo stuff because there's too much other fertile ground to talk about but when when i hear you say things like that i just can't believe there are people who call you a doomer like i don't i just don't <laughs> think they really know what you're talking about like yeah and all no, respect I'm to actually, him i love the guy I'm all respect uh, yeah, me to too, him, me, too still, me too me too me too me too me too no no it's actually the uh you know, the doomers who are the optimists and the optimists who are the doomers, you yeah. know, and, and, and it's like, because it's, it's the optimists who it's the, uh, you know, like, 
as a doomer who's really an optimist and you can sense I'm just an optimist, the doomer is just an optimist on a different time frame. And basically that you kind of, if you can't see that time frame, I'm just like, you know, yeah, like 50 years from now matters a lot. And like, if you sense that reality is such that maybe you can change the world 50 years from now, but you can't change it 20 years from now. And you think you want to change it 20 years from now, you're going to be wasting a lot or five years from now, Jesus Christ, 10 years, you're going to be wasting a lot of energy that could be going into changing the world 50 years from now. And I think that if you basically start thinking about, if you basically start your like kind of commitment to changing the world to an acknowledgement that this will be a slow and therefore a very deep process, you're short of shooting at the right level. And when people shoot on like mattering on like shorter time frames, it's just kind of lying to people. And like, you know, you can't recover from that like falsity. Like the truth is that, you know, the problems are not superficial at all. They're really kind of fundamental to America's place in history. Yep. And, yep. and it's very and like, important for people to understand. It's very the... important for people yeah. to understand that. And it's also very important for people to understand that, like, you know, um, Charles Moras and, and France used to talk about the difference between, uh, you know, the real country and the legal country. You know, you can basically love, uh, you know, America, the place, it's people, it's whatever. And, you know, not have a very positive opinion of Washington. And, you know, one of the things that we basically see in all of history is that all regimes consider themselves eternal. You know, maybe Hitler was like, oh, we're going to do this only for a thousand years. But, you know, he basically meant eternal, right? You know, and, and no, no regime sort of imagines like regime change. No dynasty imagines its own fall. No, you know, and yet these changes keep happening and they are by far the, the, the most common cause of large scale political change in history. It's as though we like forgot all the earthquakes that happened on, on the San Andreas or whatever, you know, and, and, and actually most of the motion in history is not gradual, but catastrophic. And yet basically whenever these catastrophes come, in both in the sort of the neutral sense of the word catastrophe, we see that one of the reasons why there are catastrophes in the bad sense, no one expects them. No one has planned for them. No one what's, knows what to do with the crisis or the opportunity. People just like, you know, the people who should be doing useful things just stand around twiddling their thumbs and the people who sense an opportunity to create evil just spring into motion, you know, and uh, to paraphrase Yates. And, and so, like having, you know, the sense that actually this is just the easiest, you know, I mean, the way the way I start off my my new draft, you know, uh, of Grey Mirror is that I point out that, um, you know, we're a nation. It's just completely committed to public service because every high school student applying to college writes about how much he or she wants to change the world. Either that or we're all just liars, you know, but the like the the you know the sense of like actually you know how do you create real change how do you make things completely different happen almost always goes through some kind of wow let's in some sense completely replace the government and like that's a thing that happens sort of normally in history and it often happens even kind of nonviolently 
in history. And because every, you know, just because a regime doesn't have a procedure for retiring itself in favor of a new regime doesn't mean anything can stop it. There wasn't anything in like the constitution of Russia that allowed Nicholas II to add, to abdicate the autocracy of all the Russias. But you know what? He felt like he wanted to do it. He felt like he had to do it. He did it. Right. And so it's actually really possible to basically transfer legitimacy to an effectively different regime in the same, much in the same way that the regime of East Germany, which certainly had no procedure for surrendering itself to capitalist imperialist West Germany, nonetheless simply did so. And nobody at all had to get shot. And, you know, the sense of basically, you know, thinking about any kind of serious change in the world that you want to see is actually most easily done that way. It is not most easily done through, unless it is happens to be almost directly on the course of power already. It is almost certainly not done through either any of the kind of de facto ways of influencing power, like lobbying and activism that we have, or for like the schoolhouse rock, you know, how a bill becomes law. <laughs> I I was I'm sorry I was just thinking that Schoolhouse Rock should do an album length like prog rock thing of how an omnibus bill becomes a law. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm just thinking about how me and you are both Gen X and you've thrown a couple references out that I wonder if the younger listeners even know what Schoolhouse that is. Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was very early Gen X if at all. That For was sure. like, before we even pre Gen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sorry, let's make on. an that's okay. Let's make an abrupt uh, shift in the conversation from this. Um, we only have a little bit more time here. And you you mentioned so this is this is a very abrupt change, but to, to go way back in the conversation, you mentioned film, and I want to know uh, how viable you think film is as like one part of the whole broader. Well, film is a really fucked up industry. So yeah, basically, exactly. like, <laughs> film is a really fucked up industry. So like monetizing film is like a very weird, you know, process. Monetizing short films is like well nigh impossible. Like, you know, you're dealing with all these goddamn middlemen and all of these, you know, systems that used to be open marketplaces, but are now pulling back from that. And so you kind of, and then, you know, sort of the options for like direct monetization are not super great. And so film is like, you know, I think it's, it's a very like promising medium. I think that there's just like a huge amount of freshness to be gen. I think, first of all, you need a whole new film industry that is like explicitly immune, explicitly immune. Um, you know, to this shit, because otherwise it is cancer. It will get to you. You have to be a separate, you know, how separate from like the mainstream. Okay. I'm exaggerating slightly, but like, you know, the sep level of separation from ma the mainstream is going to be like the level to which like the mainstream separates itself from porn. And you are on the side of the mainstream in that. So at a certain point, basically when this thing properly gets going, if anyone has worked in the mainstream industry, you don't want them. Um, and, and like, that's basically, that's the level of institution building that, you know, you need to think about. And maybe, you know, there'll be situations where you can compromise that a little bit and be like, okay, you know, you're working under a fake name. We'll forgive you, you know? Um, um, but like, that's the level of energy. That's the kind of energy 
of like creative energy that you need. Probably in film, it's more comparable, honestly, should be more comparable to like the revolution that created like, you know, Coppola and Milius and, you know, Lucas and kind of that whole like generation where, you know, but I mean, it kind of, it sort of comes out of like a different place, but you know, sort of when people want to be creative in one way, they want to be creative in other ways. And they really pull against this, like, you know, just incredibly powerful force of like politicizing and racializing everything in the fucking entertainment industry. And people just like, like they want that dead. It's radioactive. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. And so basically if you can create a space where you're like guaranteed number one, not to run into any of that shit. And number two, you're also guaranteed not to, you know, find anyone doing anything that's like going to like tar you or the people around you. You're actually creating these apolitical spaces where the most important thing is not that you're including dissident politics, but simply that you're excluding mainstream politics. It's an exclusion problem. You know, I mean, there's a story that I like to tell back from when I was running a company, you know, this is like from like five years ago where we, uh, we hired this this woman, um, you know, attractive young woman. You're always a little nervous in like an interview situation with like that. I'm interviewing her. And in fact, we hired her. But, you know, at one point I'm interviewing her and she uses the word not with any kind of sarcasm. She uses the word inclusion. And I just like freeze, like somebody pulled a gun out and put it on the table. I'm like, who am I talking to? Right. You know, and and, like she sees this and like she reacts like, you know, like and she sees my reaction, never does that again. Right. You know, but the thing is, like, you you, you've got to have a scene where, you know, that's the vibe. And if people do that shit, you're just like, whoa, man, you know, and like and that's enough. It's enough to have that feeling of like we don't do that here. That's totally enough. And, and, you know, and, and it's really sort of refreshing when that's done right. Because once that's done right and sort of well enough, you actually can kind of get to a point where you can actually like casually notice reality and you can casually exist within these taboo realities without being like, I'm breaking a taboo. I'm breaking a taboo. Right. You know, like that, like I'm breaking a taboo energy, you know, or in like, you know, my favorite, you know, field of like poetry, you know, what um, Lomez and I were describing as um, Wignat nursery rhymes, you know, yeah. that's sort of the, you know, yeah. the kind of the worst, the, the worst basically like tropes in this space, you know, are like Wignat nursery rhymes and just like basically take that outside and, and shoot it with kindness and love and, and, you know, but like make sure it's not still crawling, you know, um, but like, you know, it's possible to create this like really, really fresh feeling space that people don't even really parse as like a kind of political space, but is also like kind of resistant to becoming like polluted and kind of like entryized, right? And it's it's a delicate balance to like walk that line and sort of we'll see. I'm not sure how walkable it is at scale yet, really, but like the feeling of these kinds of groups is like really like good and and like you know i like definitely uh yeah i mean like to see like actual like sort of little commercial structures like forming and people hitting their kickstarters and like things actually happening 
you know, is great. I mean, you know, I don't know if like having any actual like real money in the space would change that vibe, but like this is the kind of early scene that we're basically getting in on the ground floor in this scene is just going to give you like a lot of kind of social and even like frankly historic dividends. And, you know, as I always say, like the per the real purpose of philanthropy is converting money into power. And basically, if you're looking to have power today over the world in 30, 40, 50 years, you know, the way to do that is to basically create a new movement in the arts. Yeah. And, and this, every that's... time we see that done, we basically see a bunch of artists and then we see the people standing behind those artists who are like only found by like biographers, right? You know, or maybe they're public, maybe they're not, but they're the people that actually make these things happen. And like, you know, I mean, if you don't want to change the world, there's lots of ways to not change the world. Yeah. Th I, this is what I loved about your acorns for the culture war essays the stuff you're talking about here. So let me, um, a quick comment, like, and then, and then two more questions that are interrelated. Sure. Then we'll wrap up. Yeah. We'll have to wrap up. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time. This has been, this has yeah, been awesome. So the first comment is a big, big problem with film is the distribution and marketing. Yeah. No so I, wouldn't you think like maybe, uh, if we could get somebody to fund the actual production of the film that we could like, distribute it through our internet networks of the yeah the i mean online the, the, yeah the thing is you're just like there's like a scale problem in like what you're sort of trying to do there because you're trying to like these are just the problem with this distribution and marketing stuff is that you know it just it's very it's granular also in a way and so it's just much harder to do stuff at like a small scale that is nonetheless sort of a positively returning scale. It basically has like kind of minimum scale problems. And that's basically why sort of this is one specific area that basically could use, I think, more energetic bootstrapping. And, you know, whereas if you're basically doing like small press publishing, like what does a mimeograph machine cost? Right. I don't think I don't think unqualified reservations volume one is being done on a mimeograph machine. But, you know, sure. Right. You know, it, there's not a whole lot of fixed cost there. There's some, but there's not a whole lot of fixed costs. You know, in film, it's just like it's all crazy ass fixed costs. You know, the thing that I would say related to that is also in film, like the returns are very variable and very weird and very unpredictable. And, you know, so when you're funding a kind of art like that, that basically, you know, two out of three times basically goes nowhere commercially and then one out of, you know, three or five times. And that's an amazing hit rate. It's just a huge hit. You know, the way to basically keep your eye focused firmly on the prize is, you know, <clears throat> they say in all endeavors, you know, never reinforce failure, always reinforce success. It's a military, you know, thing. The thing is, if you're basically coming to that from the business world where you made a, a bunch of money, you know, where the fundamental criterion, which never lies, is did this thing make money? You know, you have the wrong mindset for basically supporting the arts. Your criterion for supporting the arts has to be, is this thing good? And if it's not 100% perfectly good, you should basically just, you know, take it out next to a wall, be like, hey, look, I'm sorry, I have to do this and like do what has to be done. Right. Old, you know, old yeller. 
Go old yeller. Old yeller. You got, it's <laughs> got to get the old yeller. You know, you're, you're, you're like best friend from high school who writes the Wignat nursery rhymes. You know, you love him. You love like playing pool with him, <laughs> drinking with him, but you know, like, no, he should not keep submitting to your literary magazine. Right. You know, and, and, and so, you know, that attitude is really, really, really essential. Um, but. Yeah, if you're basically committed to like same thing if you're if you're creating art, don't worry about whether it's successful. Don't worry, don't stay up nights worrying about whether it's successful. Do what you can to make it succeed. What you should stay up nights worrying about is whether it's any good. And also if you're worrying that it's not any good, it probably isn't. Right. <laughs> but but you know, if if that's where your obsession lies, like you're going to do sort of great stuff. And if that's where you're thinking as someone who, you know, wants to basically succeed in producing what is ultimately sort of commercial, even like kind of crossover entertainment, you know, yeah, you should be thinking the way Harvey Weinstein thought of Miramax. He was just like, I'm going to make amazing stuff. I'm going to be like, use all of my taste. I'm going to basically tell the director to like, fuck off and cut 20 more minutes of this shit. Um, and you know, I'm going to like, in the meantime, be masturbating into potted plants. But you know what? I'm going to make fucking billions of dollars basically by, you know, making art movies mass market. I'm going to make the English patient and like, you know, it's going to turn this like giant, you know, like gonna be like fake Antonioni and gonna churn churn out this gigantic amount of money because the public is ready for fake Antonioni, right? You know, and 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 that's sort of the spirit on which to approach this kind of thing. And if you have the resources and the like commitment to do that in film, you know, that's that's awesome. I mean, but yeah, it's sort of it, that takes a lot more commitment than like supporting like a small press. Or something. Yeah, and, and it uh, it takes a lot more commitment from the funders as well as the people yeah. on the ground. I mean, because sure. they're slaving away with no idea what's what's going to happen with it. So let me just ask this last. We'll make this the last question. I'll, I'll bundle two into one. You talked about Grove Publishing or Grove Press in your Grove essay. Press, yeah, yeah. Very, I was very intrigued and interested by that. And um, if we think back to like the '60s, there was this very vibrant scene going on of not mm -hmm. just the people publishing the stories but also like commentary and and you mentioned like they publish you know back and forth wars about yeah, the content yeah, yeah it was a scene it was a scene right you know and, so, and it's this sorry go on no 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 I, I was just gonna ask the question like in this um in this um, milieu here of social media where every single person is their own editorialist and their own commenter and they're mm. slinging things back and forth on Twitter. Do you see like a market for a magazine like that, like a literary magazine that does um, both back the publish? Forth. Yeah. The publishing and the commentary and the criticism. Yeah. And I the think back that's a great, I, I think that that's that, I think that, you know, that's a great idea. I'm just off the cuff. You know, that's obviously a great idea. Like back and forth is just kind of wonderful. And it's sort of like, and it gives a feeling of sort of more aliveness than these things that publish just like a bunch of like often very good, but kind of sterile essays, like giving people that feeling that they're like part of something that's alive, man, you just can't, you can't do better than that, you know? And, and it's really, um, it's just like, you know, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, that scene sort of develops, 
you know, it's just an attractive scene. It's people, a scene that's people see and kind of want to be part of. And like, that's just how you win, man. You know, not like sterile exercises and let's like, you know, force every senior in Florida to learn Latin. I mean, sure. Every senior in Florida should be forced to learn Latin, you know, <laughs> but like, it's not going to do it. Right. Right. You know? right. <laughs> it's not going to make them, you know, I don't know, you know, so yeah. Awesome. Well, this was, this was great. I'm like, again, like super optimistic, more so than, uh, I've been in a long time. So I appreciate your time. And oh, so today's the 10th. I'll probably be putting this out sometime in the next 10 days because Passage Press just tweeted, I think yesterday that the 20th is expected to be the day that the book starts shipping. So we're, we're right there. We're, we're right there. And we have a, a Passage Press reading club. Uh, administered by yours truly, where we'll be doing podcast episodes of the group members reading, you know, discussing unqualified reservations. Awesome. 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 I'm uh, I'm proud to be involved. All right. Uh, Take care, man. Thank you, sir. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Set your system's volume control for slightly above the normal listening level. 